Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 33. Genesis 33, I believe it's on page 33 in the Red Pew Bible. Genesis 33. It is the morning after Jacob's tussle with the Christ. God incarnate, or at least pre-incarnate, he met God, fought God to a stalemate, confessed his true nature to God, and God himself remitted Jacob's sin, changing his name to God-fighter, letting him live and giving him new life. What a night! Everything after that is anticlimactic, right? Wrong. Stunningly, Jacob's night-long fight with God is not the literary climax of his story. This is. By any reasonable literary analysis of the Jacob narratives, this is the chapter toward which everything has been pointing. All the tension, all the mystery, all the loose ends of Jacob's life and all the literary themes all come together here in Genesis chapter 33. So what could possibly top a meeting with God? And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel, and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. Hmm, I wonder why it is that Joseph's brothers would hate him. When Esau attacks the clan, the children and the wives and the families out front will be attacked first, and Rachel and Joseph will be able to escape to slavery. Yes, Jacob is a changed man. He is one growing in spiritual maturity, but that does not necessarily come with all wisdom. At least he does put himself out front. Verse 3, he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Jacob's excessive bowing has been the cause of much speculation. Was he groveling? Was this normal? John Calvin even suggested that he's actually worshiping God and praying on his way to meeting Esau. As we will see, none of those are really the right understanding of what's happening, but for now, Here's what we must remember. Do we recall the blessing that Jacob stole from Isaac? The blessing that he lied to his father to get. That blessing in part included this, Genesis 27, 29. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. After all of Jacob's conniving and scheming, the blessing he sought is reversed. He is bowing down to his mother's son, not the other way around. And whether it's the problems that arose surrounding Hagar and Ishmael, or this scene here, 
One of the themes of Genesis is that our attempts to secure God's promises by ungodly means always backfire. Said another way, there is no right reason to do the wrong thing. The blessing said that Jacob's brothers would bow to him, but he is bowing to Esau. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Jacob assumed that all familial love was gone and he is hoping merely to avoid a conflict by bowing in cool formality. Esau throws all formality out the window and greets his brother with warmth and emotion. He greets his brother with love. It is hard not to think of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah, likewise, and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Remember the gifts that Jacob had sent out ahead. Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. In some conversations with people, over time you'll begin to notice the presence of God or the absence of God from their conversation. We note here how Jacob attributes everything he has twice to the grace of God. Esau, for his part, though he comes off as a good guy in this scene, though Esau comes off as a good brother, Nevertheless, you notice he does not attribute what he has to God. And the rest of the scriptures uphold that Esau is not a regenerate, redeemed man. We must never mistake. Esau simply says, I have enough. Not because God gave it to me, but because I have it. We must never mistake kindness, outward goodness, humanity, for a redeemed inward being. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. We have no record that Jacob ever visited Esau in Seir. 
the close of this passage, Jacob will actually turn away from Seir and go in the opposite direction. So whether this is an outright lie or a polite rejection, it's not you, it's me. Whatever the case, perhaps he actually expresses sincere intent to visit and is providentially hindered from doing so. We don't know. But Esau presses the issue a little further. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Armed, able-bodied assistance has been offered by Esau and politely rejected by Jacob. And so Esau heads home. Jacob actually turns north back to Succoth. Whether the brothers reestablish regular familial relations, we do not know. The only record we have is that they would meet at least one more time at their father's funeral. Verse 18, And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, and on his way from Paddan Aram, uh, on his way from Bedamer, and he camped before the city. And the sons, and from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El, God of the Godfighter. Let's pray. Spirit of God, author of these events, author of this record of these events, revealed to us its meaning, reveal to us the incredibly important truth illustrated for us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I have taken more than a hundred classes in my life. Most of those taught me things. They imparted information. They gave me facts to add to my brain's filing system. But a few of those classes did not merely give me information. Rather, they overhauled how I thought about that information. Those classes upended the way I viewed the world. If most classes provided data that needed to be filed away, those few classes changed the whole filing system. One of those was 10th grade economics with Mr. Gumbrell. Mr. Gumbrell changed how I thought about the world in several ways. One of those paradigm-shifting truths that Mr. Gumbrell taught was that nothing in life is free. Nothing in life is free. Even taking a nap on a lazy, sunny Saturday afternoon costs you something. Because you spend that time taking that nap, you can never get that time back, and you can never spend it in any other way. There is a cost even with that nap. Nothing in life is free. The coupon for a free trial at the local store is either costing the manufacturer or it's costing the store. Though it's not costing you, there is a cost. Everything has a cost. The cost may be hidden or it may be paid by another, but there is always a cost. We cannot understand and properly appreciate forgiveness 
until we grasp Mr. Mr. Gumbrell's transcendent truth that nothing is free. Politicians right now are banning the idea of student loan forgiveness. Student loan forgiveness. What do they mean by that? Well, canceling the debt, not making them pay what is owed. And that does capture some sense of what forgiveness is. It's canceling a debt. But there is a cost. Student loan forgiveness illustrates very nicely the broader truth of forgiveness that we need to understand. Why do we have to understand forgiveness? Why is it so important? It's absolutely central to our Christian faith. In fact, if you were to ask me, if you were to challenge me to boil down Christianity to one word, first of all, I couldn't do it. Let's just be honest. You can't boil Christianity down to one word. But if I had to, there'd be a lot of excellent contenders. The word salvation would certainly be in the running. The word grace would certainly be in the running. But if I had to pick one word, I think it would be this word, forgiveness. Why? Well, forgiveness is both the cause and effect of our faith. It is the root and the fruit of our faith. Think about it. We just prayed a few moments ago, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The way we forgive our debtors, in the manner we forgive our debtors. You know, it was minutes after Jesus taught that prayer to his disciples that he went on to say this. If you forgive men their trespasses, your Father who is in heaven will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Forgiveness is absolutely central to the Christian faith. Buddhism may emphasize serenity and peace. Islam may be about personal morality and goodness. Christianity is about forgiveness. God demands worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth, and we cannot worship in truth if we do not understand forgiveness. If we have a mistaken idea of what this is, we must grasp it. And so using the reunion of Esau and Jacob, we're going to look at three points regarding forgiveness. First, we're going to look at what is forgiveness? What is the definition? Secondly, we're going to look at how is forgiveness enacted? How do you actually live it out? Thirdly, we're going to take up the issue of why would we forgive at all? So how, you know, what is forgiveness? How is forgiveness enacted? And why would we forgive at all? What is forgiveness? Well, first of all, I want to point out that we get forgiveness very wrong very often. If someone borrows my sander and he drops it and it breaks, and he goes out and buys me a new sander, when he returns it, when he returns the tool, he explains to me what happened. You know, Scott, I was working in my garage, and I I knocked the sander off the workbench, and it fell on the concrete floor, and the housing broke open, but I got you this new sander. And if I respond with, thanks, all is forgiven... That's not forgiveness. I've forgiven nothing. That just merely expresses the fact that I'm satisfied with having a newer sander than I gave him. I came out ahead in that transaction. I came out better 
as a result of that transaction. That's not forgiveness, though I may use the word forgiveness in that situation. So suppose instead of my sander, perhaps he borrows my shotgun to go duck hunting, and he drops it overboard into the Chesapeake Bay. Well, what he didn't know when he borrowed that shotgun was that my grandfather gave me that shotgun, so it has some sentimental value to it. And my grandfather is dead now, and that was one of the few things I had to remember Grandpa. So you see, he cannot just buy me a new shotgun. I want that shotgun. I want you to put on a wetsuit, search the bottom of the bay, and find that gun, and when you do, all is forgiven. That's not forgiveness either. There is no forgiveness when the offender pays what is owed. When he buys me a sander or fishes my shotgun off the floor of the bay, there is no longer any obligation to me, so there's nothing I have forgiven. Now, suppose I say, yeah, you're never going to find that shotgun. Forget about it. Accidents happen. You know, I forgive you. But then I don't talk to him again for weeks. Or I go around the church and tell everybody else about the slippery-fingered duck hunter who dropped my grandfather's gun in the bay. Or you start to notice that I leave the room whenever he comes in. Or I turn down a committee assignment because I don't want to be on that committee with this guy. I said, don't worry about the shotgun. I said, all is forgiven. But that's not forgiveness either. Saying the words, I forgive you, does not constitute forgiveness. Go back to the student loan illustration. Forgiveness is not making people pay. Forgiveness is not making people pay. When you forgive, you relieve their debt to you, and you don't make them pay. Now, some of you will say, but, but, but Scott, you didn't make him buy you a new shotgun. You didn't make him pay. You forgave him. But I will point out that most of the offenses that are committed against us cannot be repaid with money. Borrowed shotguns and sanders are rarely the stuff that tears marriages and families and churches apart. It's the offense, the slight, the sin against. And these cannot be repaid financially, and we know that, and we rarely require financial payment. No, generally, we make people pay in one of three ways, or perhaps all of these ways. We make people pay, and I want to give credit to Dr. Vadi Bakum for these three, because I couldn't come up with a better list than he did. <clears throat> uh, we make people pay by withholding attention, affection, or honor. We generally make people pay for their offense against us by withholding attention, affection, or honor. Unforgiveness plays out in those ways. I told him he was forgiven, but I wouldn't stay in the room with him. I would not give him attention. This is what tears marriages apart. 
There is this terrible idea that love means never having to say you're sorry. That is wrong. The proximity of a marriage, the intimacy of a marriage, means that the other person sees a whole lot more of my sins, and I have to say I'm sorry a whole lot more. I have to apologize to Becky far more often than I have to apologize to any of you all. At which point you're thinking, wow, poor Becky. The hard part, of course, is actually being on the other side of that equation and forgiving. And what happens when we don't? We say the words to our spouse, you're forgiven, but then we withhold attention or affection. We make them pay. That's not forgiveness. And that eats away at the relationship until one day there is no relationship to speak of. This tears churches apart. All is forgiven, but I can't go to that church anymore anymore with an elder like that. And I'm going to withdraw my attention, my affection, and my honor from that elder and from that church. The words, you're forgiven, are spoken. But then I'm going to make you pay. Jacob, for his part, has taken advantage of Esau's disinclination towards spiritual things. He seized the birthright through some underhanded schemes. Then some years later, he flat out lies to his father to steal the blessing. He even takes the Lord's name in vain. Jacob is very guilty in what he has done against Esau. Of course, Esau is no angel. He didn't respond to that, those series of events with um, an appropriate uh, amount of forgiveness. No, he threatened to kill Jacob. This is one toxic relationship. This is a serious mess. Imagine for a moment if one of your siblings threatened to kill you, and it was such a serious threat you had to get out of town for 40 years. And yet, what do we see here? Honor. Jacob bowing to Esau. The older brother paying him the honor, the, 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 uh, sorry, Jacob bowing to Esau, paying the older brother the honor that was expected in that culture. And Esau? Affection. He falls upon Jacob's neck, hugging him, crying, deeply moved. Neither of them is trying to make the other one pay for the wrong that was done. They do not withhold attention, affection, or honor. Now you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute there, Pastor, Jacob does pay. But the key here is that Esau didn't require it. Esau didn't make him. Esau waved off the debt, and that's forgiveness. And we'll come back around to that in just a moment. Forgiveness is the remission of an obligation. It is the canceling of a debt. Forgiveness is not making someone pay, not with money, nor by withholding attention, affection, or honor. How is forgiveness enacted? How does it play out in life? Well, there are a lot of possible right answers to that question, and there are a lot of valid illustrations. I want to pull a few out of this story and out of this text. First, Jacob and Esau do not dwell 
in the past. They do not relive, retell, or relitigate their past. They leave it in the past. Now, I'm not saying forgive and forget. That's not what this is. We humans don't forget. And forgetting takes the glory out of forgiveness. Forgiveness is remembering and still not making them pay. But one of the reasons we struggle to forgive is that we are constantly bringing up the offense, constantly harping on it, constantly rehashing it, constantly thinking about it. These brothers do not do that. In a few weeks, we are going to be in the Joseph material. And when we get there, we're going to see how Jacob cannot let go of Joseph's disappearance. He can't let go of what happened in the past, and it poisons his family and his present then. But here on this occasion, Jacob does let go of the past, as does Esau. The unhealthy behavior that's going to be in Jacob's future is not here in this present. They don't hold on to the past. A woman came into my office to talk to me about a situation in the church where I was pastoring, And the situation um, is a situation she thought I should know about so that I could properly shepherd some things that were going on in the church. She described the offense that another woman committed against her. And not one thing she mentioned sounded familiar to me. And as she talked about it, names of people came up, people who, far as I knew, hadn't attended the church in years. So finally, I ask, when did this happen? She stopped, and she kind of did one of those things where she kind of scratched her head and did a little mental math, and and she looked at me and said, 15 years ago. That was 10 years before I was even installed as a pastor at that church. Now, this woman was as sweet as they come, as gentle as a butterfly, as seemingly kind as anyone you've ever met. But wow, could she hold a grudge. She could not put the past in the past. And it poisoned her life and it poisoned her church. Forgiveness is enacted by letting the past be in the past. You can't change it. You can't go back and fix it. You can't redo it. So making them pay in the present isn't going to accomplish anything. The second thing you see Jacob and Esau do as an enacting of forgiveness is that they focus on what they have rather than on what they don't have. Jacob says, God has blessed me with all these wives and children and herds. Esau, for his part, says, keep your stuff, brother. I have enough. By looking at what they have, it is easier not to exact payment. In other words, it's easier to forgive. When our focus is, she embarrassed me in that moment. In that moment, I didn't get the respect I deserve. That's when we go after payment and are unforgiving. Instead, we need to realize that even in that moment of public embarrassment, when she slighted me, nevertheless, my husband loves me, my children honor me, my church respects me. In this world, 
I have the recognition and respect I desire. By focusing on what we have rather than what we don't have, it is much easier to live lives of forgiveness. How did Jesus teach it? The one who has been forgiven much will love much. When you look at what you have as a consequence of those who have forgiven you, it is much easier to turn around and forgive others. The need for payment, that demand that somebody pay the price of slighting me, arises usually out of a heart that is looking at what they want, what they covet, rather than what they have, rather than the blessings God has given them. Jacob and Esau leave the past in the past, and they focus on what they do have, rather than giving attention to what they do not have. Finally, Jacob sweetens forgiveness by paying what was not demanded. Always, 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 if you are enabled to repay what you owe, repay it. That's a biblical concept, to recompense a wrong you've done to somebody. Not to buy their forgiveness, but rather to sweeten their forgiveness, to make forgiveness a joyous thing for all involved. Now, you remember when Abraham negotiated for Sarah's burial cave? Remember how Ephron the Hittite said to Abraham, Nah, don't worry about paying for the land. Just take it, bury your dead. But, but, you know, if you wanted to pay, I mean, what's a few thousand dollars between friends? And that was the negotiating technique of that time and place. And some have looked at this and said, well, that's what Esau is doing. He's doing this kind of this backdoor negotiation, this really gentle negotiation. No, he's not. Look at uh, verse 10. I hope verse 10 smacked you upside the head while we were reading it. Did you catch what it said? Jacob says to Esau, please accept my gift, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. Now, come on. Is Esau really that handsome? I don't think so. He's pushing 100 years old at this point. And this is not hyperbole. Jacob had seen the face of God that very morning. So what is he saying? He saw the face of God, and he lived. Jacob's point of comparison with Esau is that I know I should have fallen dead before God because of my sinfulness and his holiness, and I did not. And I admit, brother, that I owe you a tremendous debt and you have not exacted it from me. His comparison of seeing Esau to seeing God is proof that Jacob understood in that moment he had been forgiven again. Just as he'd been forgiven that morning by God, now he's forgiven this afternoon by his brother Esau. This is not a negotiation going on. This is forgiveness. And then Jacob says, let me give you what I owe you. By the way, how could you possibly put a number on that? How do you quantify the value of a blessing? 
This is not any mathematical formula for repayment, but rather Jacob in love responding to Esau's forgiveness. This is what we do. This is what the Bible teaches, that when we understand the forgiveness that's been given to us, we're going to respond by wanting to give back to the one who forgave us. And it makes forgiveness that much sweeter, that much easier to practice. Maybe you cannot find my grandfather's shotgun on the bottom of the Chesapeake Bay. But if you can afford it, you probably should replace the shotgun to the best of your ability. Of course, I shouldn't require that or demand it or expect it. I should forgive. Jacob and Esau do not relive, rehash, or relitigate the past. And they focus on what they have rather than on what they don't have. And finally, Jacob um, repays out of love and appreciation that which was forgiven. These are three very practical ways that we can live lives of forgiveness. Unforgiveness makes people pay, often by withholding attention, affection, or honor. Forgiveness cancels the debt and requires nothing. Enacting forgiveness includes, but is not limited to, uh, uh, leaving the past in the past, focusing on what you have rather than what you don't have. Finally, why would we forgive? Why is forgiveness so important? Well, for starters, because unforgiveness is going to cost you more than you will ever extract from the other person. When you withhold attention, affection, or honor, you hurt yourself, usually more than you hurt the other person. It has been well said that unforgiveness is like drinking poison in hopes the other person will die. Jacob and Esau moved forward with their lives, not looking over their shoulders, not wondering if the other one was going to come and get them not wondering if they would have a debt that would come due someday. And it freed them. Forgiveness set them free. I don't have the time or the psychological qualifications to go into that any deeper, but one good reason to forgive is so that you will not be poisoned by your own unforgiveness. By the way, there is no time limit on that. And there is no requirement that the other person ask for forgiveness. In other words, if you've been withholding attention, affection, and honor from your mother because she was a terrible mother when you were a child, it's destroying you. Forgive her. Call her. Go to her birthday party. And while you're there, pay her attention, show her affection, and give her honor. You see, love is not an emotion and neither is forgiveness a function of how you feel. Let it go. Stop making mom pay for your lousy childhood. Forgive. Another reason to forgive is theological. Think about the Lord's Prayer we offered earlier. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. John Piper has this insightful paragraph to say about that. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors means 
No one who cherishes a grudge against someone dare approach God in search of mercy. God treats us in accordance with the belief of our heart. If we believe it is good and beautiful to harbor resentments and tabulate wrongs done against us, then God will recognize that our plea for forgiveness is sheer hypocrisy, for we will be asking him to do what we believe to be bad. It is a dreadful thing to try to make God your patsy by asking him to act in a way that you, as your actions show, esteem very lowly. When you keep score, when you tally up a total, when you require that another person get right with you by paying the price you wish to extract from them, you have laid out for everyone to see what you believe relationship restoration looks like. Now, if that's the right way to restore a relationship, then why would you want God to do it the wrong way? Which means you think this is how God and you have a restored relationship. He demands a price, and you meet it, and then everything is good with you and God. I hope you see what a perversion of the gospel that is. Are we beginning to see how forgiveness captures both sides of the Christian life? It is the indicative. You are forgiven. And it is the imperative. Go forgive others. We should forgive because it is simply healthier for us. We should forgive because it aligns with our theology and reflects our gospel faith. But there is another deeper, higher, wider reason to forgive. Remember Mr. Gumbrell's paradigm-shifting maxim that nothing is free? Everything has a cost? Remember the student loan forgiveness plan? You know, the politicians always hide the cost on that one. The banks aren't going to just absorb that cost. No, the government's going to pay those loans off. With money it doesn't have, which means it's going to take out loans, which means there's going to be interest due, which means our children and grandchildren are going to pay back those student loans. You see, here is an important truth of forgiveness. It's not merely canceling a debt. It's transferring it to someone else. Forgiveness always involves the transfer of obligation, of payment, of cost to another. When I will not forgive you dropping my grandfather's shotgun in the Chesapeake Bay, it's because I'm not willing to absorb the cost of losing that sentimental thing. And I try to force that cost on you. I try to make you pay by the way I treat you. It doesn't raise the shotgun off the bottom of the bay. It certainly doesn't make me closer to my grandfather, who was an incredibly forgiving man. It doesn't exact the payment I really want 
but I'm still going to try to make you pay because I don't want to absorb that cost. That person at church who may have slighted you, who may have cost you some respect in that moment, who may have embarrassed you or hurt your feelings, is there any way for you to recover that? Is there any way for you to get it back? You just have to absorb the cost in order to forgive. See, withholding any amount of attention, affection, or honor is never going to change history. You simply have to absorb the cost. Which gets a whole lot easier when you remember this. All the world is full of sinners, including you who owe to God a debt for their sin. The very life he gave to them. The very life he gave to you. The life he said that should be lived like this, and you refuse to live it that way. And he demands it back. That's the payment. That's the cost for your sin. And how is it that you're forgiven? The cost doesn't just vaporize and go nowhere. No, it fell on to God. God absorbs the cost for your sin. In sending his son to become one of us, to go to the cross for us, to absorb God's wrath against sin for us, God bore in himself the cost of your sin and mine. And when we are not forgiving, think about the theological ramifications. God might be willing to accept Jesus' life for your sin, but I want more. I have a higher standard for repayment than God has. Sure, Jesus of Nazareth met his requirements. Sure, God is satisfied with the payment made on your behalf, but I want more out of you. To be unforgiving is to imagine that someone owes you a debt greater than you owed God. Or that canceling that debt will cost you more than it cost God, the cost of your forgiveness was the life of Jesus. You know, we opened by noting that this chapter is the literary climax of the Jacob narrative in Genesis. Jacob will remain on the scene for most of the rest of the book, but after this, he steps into the shadows and his children come to the forefront of Genesis. This is the final scene focused primarily on Jacob's life. And it is, a st- it is stunning that his meeting with Esau is the focus rather than his meeting with God. I think if most of us were writing the script, we'd have been tempted to put it the other way around. He'd have met Esau in chapter 32. He'd have met God in chapter 33. And that would have been the close of Jacob's life. But God wrote the story and did so in this order. Why? 
Because after we meet with God, after we wrestle with God, we go on living. And that meeting with God must bear fruit in our lives. That is why I said that forgiveness was the root and the fruit of our faith. God forgives us, bearing in himself the cost of our sin, paying the price for us, forgiving us. We, in turn, must live out lives of forgiveness. One of the great joys of parenthood are those moments when your children live out everything you've tried to teach them. That rare moment when you walk past the playroom and they're sharing, working together, playing in peace and harmony and joy. And as a parent, you just well up inside going, wow, what a wonderful moment. It is no different with our Heavenly Father. If the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, part of glorifying him is giving him those times of great joy, of letting him see his people live out what he is teaching them in Jesus. Living lives of forgiveness, of not making the other person pay. The psalmist captured it this way, Psalm 133. It's just three verses long. I'm going to read the whole psalm. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. In other words, it's like a great religious rite. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The psalmist is talking about how God finds great joy in the unity of believers. Jacob had to wrestle with God. We all have to wrestle with God. But Jacob's story reaches its spiritual zenith, not in the moment he wrestles with God, but in the moment that that was made possible by that, when the brothers were reconciled through forgiveness. Forgiveness is not making another person pay in any way. In fact, typically forgiveness means bearing the cost yourself. Forgiveness is enacted by leaving the past in the past, by focusing on what you have rather than what you don't have. And forgiveness is necessary so as not to poison yourself, so as not to make the gospel into a doctrine of restoration through retribution. But most of all, the forgiveness we have in the price Jesus paid, when that spills out of us and we forgive one another, we have achieved the climax of the redeemed, regenerate life. Let's pray. God, work forgiveness in us begin by reminding us of the phenomenal forgiveness we have at the great cost of Jesus' life. And as we understand that, as we come to grips with all that we have been forgiven, even as Jacob did on that day, he wrestled with you and he realized that he was allowed to live despite the life that he owed. And he could, therefore, go forward and forgive his brother. 
let us be that kind of person. Seeing what we have been forgiven, acknowledging, wrestling with who we are before you, coming to grips with our great sin, and recognizing that you have spared us because of the price Jesus paid. And then let us go forward and forgive one another. We pray this in Christ's name and for the glory of his reputation. Amen.